Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You see, it all starts with a baby, we'll say, at the age of six months. And the mother says, boo, and scares the hell out of the baby, gives it the hiccups, and then the baby giggles. There's its first moment of fear. Later on, it's on a swing, getting higher and higher, and catching its breath when it goes too high. And so it goes. We all enjoy, shall we say, putting our toe in the cold water of fear. Hello and welcome to Pick a Flick. I am your guest host for this evening, Chris Haig, and joining me tonight are two very excellent guests. They are Mike White and Ruth Kerr. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey, thanks for having us. Hey, how are you doing? Yes, sir. Doing well. Good. Fabulous. It's what I like to hear. Um, before we start, I would like to say... You know, to all our listeners out there, if you want to follow us on iTunes, if you want to follow us on or listen to us via Stitcher, Acast, um, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you want to leave us a review on iTunes, that would be even better because we love reading your reviews. Um, and you can always follow us on the Twitters um, at PickaFlickPod and Black Hole Media. Okay, so without further ado, let's pick a flick. The first film in our special Hitchcock double bill is Rear Window in, from 1954. Rear Window is the story of a wheelchair-bound photographer who spies on his neighbours from his apartment window and becomes convinced that one of them has committed murder. This was obviously directed by Alfred Hitchcock and is considered one of his best ever films. So that's it. You won't stay here and I can't go with you. It would be the wrong thing. You don't think either one of us could ever change? Right now, it doesn't seem so. I'm in love with you. I don't care what you do for a living. I'd just like to be part of it somehow. It's deflating to find out the only way I can be part of it is to take out a subscription to your magazine. I guess I'm not the girl I thought I was. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with you, Lisa. You've got this town on the palm of your hand. Not quite, it seems. Goodbye, Jeff. Well, you mean good night. I mean what I said. Well, well Lisa, couldn't we just... Uh, couldn't we just keep things status quo? Without any future? Well, when am I going to see you again? Not for a long time. At least, not until tomorrow night. say before starting that I'm completely biased against this film because in the very first Black Hole Cinema I chose this film as one of my kind of top films I chose it as my film to basically gush about and why it's my favourite film so I automatically have a bias towards this film but yeah I'm really interested to see and kind of hear what you guys really thought of it well, I feel pretty bad because I watched the 1998 version with Christopher Reeve. I didn't realize that this was a Hitchcock show, so... Okay. <laughs> I, I hope that's all right. Totally fine. There's going to be some similarities, I think. I've seen 98 version of Christopher Reeves as well, so that's not too bad. <laughs> uh, Ruth, have you seen the 54 version? I have seen the 54 version. I've seen it many times. And I didn't even know there was an 88 version, so there we go. I hope you guys know I was kidding, so just... Oh, thank God. (gasps) Thank God. Oh, you had me going. Oh. It it does exist. There is a Christopher Reeve movie that was made when he was post-wheelchair, and I was kind of exploiting him almost, because what other roles could he play at at that point other than a a new L.P. Jeffries? I mean, it is pretty nice that they managed to walk that fine line between kind of tokenism and actually giving him a vehicle, because there's not that many roles out there for disabled actors. <laughs> um, no joking aside, what do we actually think of the of the of Rear Window? I absolutely love Rear Window. I saw this for the first time when I was in my early 10s. I might have been in my teens barely the first time I saw it, and I've loved it ever since. And I kind of have a funny story about one of the first times that I saw it. I was at uh, I was at band camp in uh, junior high, going into high school, and right. uh, looking around uh, at the other people who were at band camp. They decided to show this movie for one of our movie nights, and here's a bunch of 13, 14-year-olds who are watching Rear Window, and at one point I kind of broke away from the story and was looking around, and everybody was into it. Here we were, like, huddled around this television set, and I was just like, all of these kids, me being one of them, are into this movie. And it was just kind of amazing that it could have that type of power over this 
you know, here we are so many decades away from when it was made and nobody's laughing that it's corny or anything. Everybody was not seated. You know, we were, we were sitting on the ground. So I can't say we're on the edges of our seats, but it definitely had a hold over this audience. That's fantastic. Well, that's really interesting because rear window is, is a person could say it has a more of a leisurely pace uh, as opposed to a lot of movies kids that age would be watching. And it's it, it's encouraging to hear that they were right into it. Yeah, it was very nice. And it kind of gave me a little bit of uh, hope for our generation. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my first time saying it was nowhere near as cool. I, yeah, I mean, I started with Hitchcock when I was about 14, 15. I was kind of really discovering film for the first time. So I first saw it on a Sunday afternoon. And I was like, okay, so I've seen Hit Psycho and... I really wanted to see what this was like, and it was amazing. It completely blew me away, because it's kind of the opposite in terms of the gore factor and all that sort of thing, even though subtextually it's quite a gory film and all that sort of thing. And it is kind of a raw representation of everything that Hitchcock does and his kind of elements and how that's distilled and all that sort of thing. So if you were going to come up with like a Venn diagram of what Hitchcock is, it would be some of these elements. It would be like this film as a whole um you know i'm trying to think i think uh it was i think it was in my 20s and i think i actually saw it at an art house theater they were showing it and i think the first time i saw it was on the big screen so it was uh i was very impressed and it was one of the first hitchcock movies i ever saw oh that's fantastic i think it was after it had been released because you know it would sort of been Oh wait, sorry. I'm thinking of Vertigo. Sorry about that. But it, yeah, it was it was impressive. It was impressive to see that uh, on the big screen. That one must, must have been amazing to see on the big screen. I mean, the thing that kind of strikes me a bit about Rear Window is is that it deals with quite mature themes, particularly given that this came out in the fifties, and it does deal with stuff like voyeurism and the idea of spying on people and all these themes that really wouldn't have been shown years and years and years ago. So. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a way, you could even see it as like a prelude to stuff like Peeping Tom and kind of um, the horror slasher films where they put the um, the audience in the POV of the the hero, and then in the last kind of ten minutes, they also do it in the villain with the um, the flashlight trick. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what you guys thought, but for me, with the stuff like the claustrophobia of it being all confined to the one apartment and the idea that it's all very confined to this one apartment because normally in films you have it kind of spread across the different different locations and it's much more of a thriller aspect to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it reminds me a lot of that. Um, oh, God, what was the film? Um, is it Rope? The film where there's the, um, the the two students who kill someone and it's perfect murder and... Yeah, 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 Rope. That's it, yeah. Sorry, I completely forgot that he's done so many and he's had such a prolific career that it's kind of hard to keep track of them all at the same time. But yeah, I mean, um, look, I mean, for you guys, looking back on it now, given the fact it is 62 years old um, this year, um, what is it about this film, do you think, that has really made it kind of survive, I guess, or still be quite potent, still quite accessible, and still quite um, thrilling and engaging as a film? Particularly given that in the 1950s, a lot of these sort of films were starting to come out, even though none were exactly like this. The thriller, it would kind of move past the 1940s, Villanoir, and now we're into the proper thriller era. Well, I can't really think of another thriller that 
would put you into a room, and, you know, it's kind of like the old locked room kind of thing, but here you are, you're locked in a room, and observing everything, mostly observing everything that our hero is observing, and the way that they put you into that, that seat that, you know, we're confined in a chair, just very much like Jimmy Stewart is, and not ever taking us outside of that, I think is fantastic. Like, when, we go over to the other apartments. Yes, we get some closer shots and uh, we we see some different angles, but we're always supposed to be grounded in Jeff's apartment. And I really appreciate that about this film is that we don't ever get a, a cheat. You know, and we don't we don't necessarily jump across the courtyard until the very end of it. And I, I think that that's terrific. I agree with you, Mike. It's it's. Uh... Like when you sit down and watch the movie for the first time, you think, oh, this is this is it. These are the parameters we're looking at. Jimmy Stewart's crappy apartment. But um, when as the story unfolds, you don't even really notice that you haven't moved like mentally. You haven't moved out of that room. What I find interesting about it, though, is because it's so ordinary. It's an ordinary apartment. Jimmy Stewart has an ordinary injury. He lives in a an unusual apartment con- complex, but it's not really out of the ordinary. So it's the ordinary that we're familiar with, but this terror that is unfolding. Because, you know, we, we maybe you fellows don't do it, but once in a while I notice an odd thing a neighbor may be doing and you think, oh, what if what if they're burying treasure in the backyard? What if they're having an affair, you know? And you think these things, but you know that it's not true. It's it, it's not, you can't take it to the extreme because that's not what's going on. There's normally an, a logical explanation. But in this movie, the worst thing you could think does come true. And I, I sort of like how it's everyday life, but like I said, this this horror is unfolding itself in this very normal urban situation i mean living situation yeah i mean i think a point that you touched on really well though ruth is the idea of this of the film dealing with the idea of you know being completely normal and then there's the outlier there is this kind of intrusion into the normal world which in this case boils down to you know james stewart going the guy in the apartment opposite i think he's just killed his wife I mean, it is a brilliant way to kind of bring a story together because you are then presented with the kind of challenge then. Do you make this a story about an extraordinary man in extraordinary circumstances or do you make it about an entirely normal situation and then something, maybe not extraordinary, but something dramatic or out of place or outlier that happens and kind of shatters this world or it completely changes it, which I think this movie does exceptionally well. Um, And it's this kind of paranoia in a sense that really kind of infuses the film with this really kind of dark undercurrent which is it's brilliantly done because on the surface it can be quite a light film but there is these really dark themes that exist within it which is a great kind of juxtaposition and i mean what i really enjoy and what i enjoyed on kind of repeat viewings is that as a film it doesn't confirm james stewart's kind of suspicion straight away it doesn't automatically go yeah, he's completely right, and you know what, he's always in the right and all that sort of thing. Because for a while you do kind of play with the idea that he's maybe, maybe he's got, you know, he's he's invented the whole thing, maybe it's innocent, maybe he's like going a bit mad or something like that. So I do like it's not until much later in the film that you suddenly get this 
kind of twist and it's like oh yeah this is real this is really happening all that sort of thing um which i think was very interesting and it makes it a much more interesting film um just one little um side thing that i really want to talk about i adore the cast in this i love it i think it's so well put together cast wise i mean that's one thing that hitchcock always did manage to kind of do really well is get these fantastic casts i mean for me personally i love the chemistry between james stewart and grace kelly in this um and also really between james stewart and thelma ritter who plays oh stella the nurse stella that's Mm -hmm. it that's it stella what i'd love for you obviously i want you guys to tell me but it's really the question is do you consider this like one of his greatest ever films or is it like just a particularly is it a solid one is it a strong one is it kind of middle of the road um Kind of, where would you place it? Oh, if I had to make a top ten Hitchcock, which I hope nobody would ever ask me to do, but I would definitely put this in that top ten because this is one of the best. I mean, this is one that I go back to. Mm. You know, even though I know what the twists and turns are, he manages things so successfully. It really works for me every time that I see it, and I get to pick up more things each time that I see it. You know, it's not just that this is uh, a very thin story about a man who doesn't witness a murder but thinks that his neighbor has murdered his wife. There's a lot more to this, and that's one of the things that makes a great film for me. I agree with you. I would I wouldn't place it at the top of the top ten, um, but I it would be on my top ten list, um, and. What you were saying before, Chris, about the the cast, I think the casting is is actually quite brilliantly done. Um, Thelma Ritter, to me, sort of represents us, the audience, or the voice of reason. You know, when she's in the opening scene, when she's giving Stuart a a massage and uh, she's sort of chastising him for not marrying Grace Grace Kelly, Lisa Fremont, uh, sooner... And she's skeptical, but when she buys into Stuart's theory, I fully buy into it, too. So I I find that for myself personally, I'm gauging my reaction to this film and the other characters by what she's doing. Um, I also think Jimmy Stewart was a very good choice, because when you look at L.B. Jeffries as a person, he's not very likable. Um, He doesn't he, he really is kind of snide towards Grace Kelly's character. Um, he's not. He rebuffs her romantic advances, which is odd for a fiance to do. But maybe that's another subject we will or will not talk about. Um, and he he has a compulsion to run away. Like Mike, in the papers that you sent uh, before this podcast, somebody was talking about how L.B. Jeffries is a professional voyeur with his camera. He's running to all these different spots around the world, looking at people, but he never becomes involved with them. And here's his chance to become involved with uh, Grace Kelly, and he doesn't. In fact, he seems to have a more of an intimate relationship with Stella, the nurse, than he does with his own fiancé. Yeah, he seems much more interested in the people across the way, and really it's not until Lisa joins that cast of characters across the way that he seems to really be paying attention to her, because there's so many times where she'll make her advances and he'll either rebuff her or just be looking out the window while she's right there in front of him. And it's interesting the way that her character is introduced it's one of the strangest introductions of of a character that i've seen in a long time the way that he is there asleep 
And and we get a few times where he's sleeping in this film, which I find interesting as well. But he's there sleeping, and we get this really ominous shadow going across (laughs) him. And it ends up being Grace Kelly, of all people. You're like, there's nothing ominous about Grace Kelly. And then even that slow-motion kiss that she gives him, it's just like there's very few. I mean, there's a couple instances of fast motion later on in the film, which are kind of funny. you know. But uh, this slow-motion kiss, it just brings such attention to itself it's like why is this shot the way that it is but i again it's like yeah she is kind of a a threat to him i see anyway uh, at least at the beginning of the story and so much of this film is him basically trying to get to a place where he can accept her at least that's how it feels to me um yeah i mean i love their relationship and i think it's really funny in a way because uh, we have jeff as our kind of protagonist but lisa is way more likable way more warm and engaging so and it's funny the role she kind of occupies in that jeff isn't really that interested interested in her until she becomes an active player until she leaves the apartment and then goes on and you know breaks into thorwald's apartment and becomes someone in his lens in his view so i mean it's almost as if he can only engage with someone once they're in front of him, you know, the lens or the glass and that's separating them. And I really like what you kind of expressing that the film's almost a journey for Jeff to kind of come to the realisation that he can have Lisa in his life, he can compromise, he can make things work, he can do this sort of thing with her. Uh, one quick thing I just wanted to mention about, because we've mentioned about voyeurism and, you know, behind the lens and all that sort of thing, uh, I read a very good piece by, it was in a book called The Women Who Knew Too Much, and it's this kind of feminist Hitchcock review that's by Tanya Medleski, Medelski, I think it's Medleski, um, and it is fantastic, so if you're interested in that sort of thing, I would encourage you to go and buy it and read it. Yeah, it's it's one of my favourite film books ever. Oh, it's so good, isn't it? Yeah. Sorry, just nerding out a bit. Um, yeah. Yeah, but it is. It is amazing. It's such a good film. Um, and just going back to what Ruth was saying, really, about um, Thelma Rutter. I mean, Thelma Rutter is... She was in loads of films, but she didn't really get starring roles in a huge amount of them, or kind of noticeable roles. But it's strange because she brings the kind of warmth. She's the audience surrogate, in a way. Yeah, she's the one they go to as, like, the the voice of reason, she's the one who's kind of this, the cynical point of view, you know, going, oh, okay, well, no, he didn't actually kill him, or you're insane, or, you know, why aren't you marrying Lisa, she's fantastic, and all that sort of thing, so in a way, um, she makes what could be a very annoying role very endearing, and very brilliant in a way, and Thelma, uh, Thelma Ritter has that ability when when she believes James Stewart in like the, the third act of the film we as an audience turn with her and we're like okay th- you know if Stella believes it so do we yeah it's a powerful bit of casting um, Grace Kelly I think she's done she did three movies with Hitchcock so she did this she did Dial M for Murder and then she did yeah uh, yeah To Catch a Thief um, and I think that this is probably easily the most I won't say likable because she doesn't ever play, or she didn't ever play kind of, vi- kind of villainesses or she, you know hugely cold characters. Um, in Dallin for Murder*, she 
was a sort of aloof character, but she was still likable and relatable. But in Rear Window, she is kind of the heart of the film in the sense she's very warm, she's very sweet, she's very kind and human and all that sort of thing. So it kind of negates this kind of Hitchcock stereotype of the the icy blonde, really. Um, and it kind of transfers that to James Stewart, who is way more of the aloof, distant kind of um, main character. But, you know, she. But she's also a complex character in this. And when I was thinking about this film, I actually think that she and the character Thorwald have a lot in common. Um, Mike, in one of the documents you sent, uh, somebody there said that, uh, I'm quoting, Thorwald represents to Jeff his own darkest possibility, you know, with the bad marriage and all that that went on there and the horrible conclusion that it came to. But when you look at Thorwald and at Lisa, as played by Grace Kelly, they are both people who are willing to commit to a monogamous relationship. They are both willing to live the day-to-day, whereas Stewart's character is not. In the beginning of the film, anyway, he is not. Um, when Thorwald sees a problem with his marriage and wants to have a dalliance with someone else, he gets rid of his wife. When Lisa sees a problem with this, she has no qualms about breaking into another person's apartment and stealing yeah. a dead woman's wedding ring. I mean, it's it's she's not she's she's very beautiful and she's very kind and would make a wonderful wife to somebody, but she has that mm. dark side to her yeah. where she's not afraid. Yeah. She's not afraid to break the law and just do do what she wants. For me, I love the kind of subtext in this film and I love the way that the different apartments um, and they use for backdrop, but they do kind of overact with the themes, and they're really used to help describe kind of the different ways that marriage and relationships can evolve. So you've got the newlywed couple next door who spend most of the time in bed, and then at the end of the film, she's annoyed that he quit his job or lost his job, and they shouldn't have got married and all that sort of thing. You've got Miss Lone Hearts, which is quite a sad story of a woman who turns suicidal at the thought of you know being on her own and all that sort of thing and then she's kind of rescued in a way by the composer upstairs who's producing this music and that's quite a sweet hopeful ending you've got the married couple with the dog you've obviously got the Thorwald you've got um, all these different kind of representations of relationships Um, and it's very interesting that it does kind of run the gamut and it does run the spectrum from the most negative which is the Thorwalds up to I mean I don't know what you guys think is potentially the most positive, um, if there is one. I would be hard-pressed to come up with a positive uh, portrayal of marriage or relationships across the way, other than maybe Miss Lonely Hearts after she and the composer get together. But even then, we've seen how other relationships play out, and I don't know if, they, if they're if they all going to end in murder or not. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I like Miss Torso and her boyfriend, or... Um, yeah, any of the couples right. really that exist in the film. There's a lot of holes in that garden. <laughs> it's funny that when we're talking about Stella and that when she buys into the story, we buy into the story. But yet there's another decrier of this whole thing, which is uh, Wendell Corey's character, uh, Tom Doyle, the, the policeman. The, and he comes in and basically explains away everything. And yet we don't want to believe him, even though he is the voice of reason. And I love that he just, you know, is, manages to everything that, that Jeff puts forward or that Lisa puts forward. He can just 
take it apart and put it down and just nope that that's not the way that it is and after a while we almost have two antagonists it's a matter of trying to convince tom and then also trying to you know quote unquote get Thorwald you know trying to get that evidence and and you know thus we would get Tom if we were able to get solid evidence and it's just funny to me that the police well the police are usually antagonists in Hitchcock films and in this one not an open antagonist but definitely you know every time he comes in he just kind of rains on our parade you know we already have all these fantasies that we're sharing with Jeff and Lisa and then eventually Stella but here he comes and he's going to ruin everything he's going to uh, ruin our our, our uh, fantasies. That's true. He's like a big wet blanket because yeah. if he's if he's right, it makes for a worse movie. Like it makes for a so what movie. We want a good movie. We 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 actually want a murder, as horrible as that sounds. That's what we want because we want oh, yeah. Jimmy Stewart to be right. Oh yeah, Hitchcock wants to implicate us in wanting the, this murder, and I love that. He, he's twisting us with this kind of stuff. It's kind of like in Psycho, when the car doesn't go all the way down in the swamp, and we're oh, there yes. with Norman, just like, oh my god, what's going to happen? <laughs> and when the car starts to sink, it's like, oh, whew, thank goodness. I am fascinated nope. by the set. Um, I just I looked up a little bit of information, and what they did is they cut out the floor of the set at Paramount. They cut out the floor, and they used the basement of the soundstage as the courtyard. And so one construction fellow or one set designer said they the set all the way went all the way from the basement to the grids, um, and it cost a hundred thousand dollars to build that set, and it took six weeks. It even had a drainage system. And um, just another small technical note, people who are in the courtyard, what they did is when they were filming them, they recorded the sound from Stewart's window to give it that kind of hollow and distant effect. Yeah, I love the soundscape in this thing. And just, you know, the, the Waxman score is nice and everything, but it, it's very subtle. And uh, really what I think of is that kind of echoing from the courtyard more than anything. And I think of that more of the soundtrack than the rest of it. Of course, I think about the songs that have Lisa in the title. You know, mm. of course, the one guy's playing Mona Lisa and then the... the, mm-hmm. the film ends with another lisa song and it's just like oh okay that's kind of nice mm-hmm. but yeah the, the set is amazing i haven't seen a set that great since uh jerry lewis is the ladies man and just the way that that also kind of have has all these rooms and compartments and everything and just thinking about the way that we're talking about looking into these rooms and you know even though we 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 get a slice of every across the way we don't get the whole picture everybody is compartmentalized in their apartment but then also compartmentalized within the rooms and the windows and the smaller windows some of the larger windows and it reminds me of that speech in shadow of a doubt where uncle charlie's talking about you know if you rip the fronts off of houses what you see are are Mm. swine and just his negative attitude towards everything and i'm just like well we're we're not quite ripping the fronts off of these apartments or the backs but we are definitely seeing into these worlds and we're not necessarily seeing the best representation of people. It is that very private place that Scotty talks about, or sorry, Scotty, that Jeff talks about at one point. It's just like, yeah, there, there is a reason why we do want privacy and this film makes us want to violate it. And I, again, I appreciate that about what Hitchcock has done to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's the ultimate ending you want to see. Just like, Oh, what happened? Yeah. Just ev- everybody's dead. Everybody said just the dog, just the dog left at the end. Going back to the 
kind of very thing that we've been talking about, there's a a brilliant line in it that I can't really remember, but I'm going to paraphrase it. Um, and it's sort of like people do like a million weird things in the home they could never explain to anybody else. And it is that whole idea of we only get like a little slice. We only get like a partial truth of what people are actually like, even if we're married to them. So I love that this film kind of comments on that and doesn't make things to be as picture perfect and all that sort of thing. And I think it's a really interesting kind of theme for it to go through. So uh, that was Rear Window, 1954. Thank you to uh, Wist Podcast for nominating that. That is Wist, which I believe stands for Why Haven't I Seen This Podcast. You can find Wist Podcast on Twitter at at Wist Podcast. I think it's W-H-I-S-T as well. So thanks, guys. Okay, this is our Alfred Hitchcock kind of special, or at least our first special. So what we're going to do is we're just going to have a kind of a discussion of one of Sinner's basically most prolific directors. I mean, I think it's worth noting that he basically did work non-stop from the 1920s to the 1970s, which has given him such an incredible body of work, basically. Um, so yeah, what did you guys think about his body of work, as it were? I, I count 55 films in his filmography, 53 as director, uh, 23 were in England. Of course, he was a, a director in England and one of the top uh, producing directors in England. Um, just a, a little how he came to America, David Olselznik, who was an independent producer, he of Gone with the Wind, he started courting Alfred Hitchcock in 1937, wanting him to come over and make a deal. Um, but they didn't actually come to an agreement until 1939. Uh, Hitchcock came to America. The first film he made was Rebecca, starring Joan Fontaine and Laurence Olivier, and it won Best Picture. So that was two Best Picture Oscars in a row for David Selznick, of course, the previous one being Gone with the Wind. And, of course, uh, it was a seven-year deal that Hitchcock signed with Selznick, and people always talk about it as being a very tumultuous marriage because David O. Selznick knew and recognized and appreciated talented people with initiative, creative people. But once he had them in his clutches, he wanted to control every aspect. He wanted control over the script. He wanted control of the filming schedule, the editing. And, of course, he and Hitch did bang heads several times over many issues. But one of the things was because Hitchcock... Because he storyboarded his films, had diagrams and directions underneath, he knew exactly what he wanted from the camera, exactly what he wanted from the actors when he was shooting. He took longer to set up his shots and longer to film things, but he knew if he said it was going to take 60 days, that's what it took, 60 days. He, he knew his process inside out. So they call it cutting with the camera, apparently. And uh, Selznick didn't like it because there was nothing left for Selznick to tinker with uh, when when the movie was shot. So it, it's kind of an interesting interesting uh, collaboration there. 
Yeah, there was such a power play between those two guys. Just reading and, and reading about some of the memos that Selznick would send. I mean, Hitchcock, I think it was like two years after Selznick died, he was uh, commenting about him. He was like, oh, yeah, I used to send these you know, really long memos. I just finished one the other day. You know, it's like... <laughs> He, yeah, Selznick definitely wanted to control Hitchcock. It was weird the way that he would kind of lend him out to other studios, and he was always kind of making money off of the other studios using Hitchcock and stuff. And I've always found that it's interesting to me that there are a couple protagonists in, um, or well, just characters in uh, Hitchcock <laughs> films that have a middle initial of O, and whenever they're asked about it, it, it usually means nothing because David O. Selznick. The O was just added later on because his uncle's name was David Selznick as well, and so it was kind of this affectation that Selznick put in there. It made him sound very pompous and hoity, and just. Hitchcock wanted to take the piss out of him whenever he possibly could. So a Roger O. Thornhill from yes. uh, from North by Northwest or or Wendell Ordinary Smith, you know, the O for, for stood for nothing in these cases. Mm-hmm. Now, Mike, have you heard uh, the rumor I keep hearing is that uh, going back to um, Rear Window for a second is that. Hitchcock cast Raymond Burr because he bears a resemblance to David O. Selznick. Is that, is that what, have you heard that as well? I have not heard that, <laughs> no, but that is great. <laughs> I always wonder when it comes to Raymond Burr with just his, his proclivities in life, if that played any kind of role, you know, if that was one of these kind of casting decisions that Hitchcock did, you know, to kind of play, play on that because there is, he, he will play with sexuality so often in his films and we'll, you know, definitely we'll be talking about this more when we talk about vertigo, but the whole idea of emasculating people or the, um, you know, just the fluid sexuality. I mean, of course there's Mrs. Danvers from, or not, yeah, Mrs. Danvers from Rebecca is one of the most, notorious unfortunately lesbian characters around and it's just you know i always wonder if that was part of it you know to have raymond burr who i think was fairly well known to be a homosexual murdering his wife in the film if that's true that is actually amazing (laughs) i i think something that every kind of viewer of hitchcock or hitchcock fan can agree upon is even if they don't like the particular film he really was a perfectionist and he kind of an author and he really knew what he was doing um and i mean one of my favorite it's probably my favorite hitchcock story um and i do love this story so much is that during the final editing and cutting of psycho the um i I don't know what the american equivalent is but it's like the british film council sort of thing they said oh well the famous shower scene you you know you're gonna have to cut all the stuff of bare breasts out and nudity and all that sort of thing and it and Hitchcock went, oh, okay, all right, that sort of thing. And then he went away, did nothing to the film, like literally left it in its film reel and everything like that, came back a week later, showed them the exact same footage, said it had been edited, and they just accepted it. I mean, that is that is amazing. I love that story so much. And there is no nudity in it, as far as I'm aware. There's no... So I don't really know what they were getting concerned about, but it was the early 60s, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean... You know, there isn't any nudity yet, and I think one of the greatest things that a, kind of a director or a writer or a producer can do is say, 
I'm not actually going to show you it. I'm going to let your brain fill in the information for you. Because that makes it a lot more potent. And in terms of horror, it makes it a lot scarier in terms of, you know, the stuff that you actually see on screen. I mean, using the shower scene as an example, you never see it actually get stabbed, but you know what's happening. And that's what makes it terrifying. I mean, I think one of the advantages of Hitchcock's movies is that he was kind of allowed to play with kind of a wide spectrum. So there was the much lighter stuff, the much darker stuff. Um, so everyone will have a slightly different fa- favourite in a sense. Um, and that's great. I mean, we asked people on Twitter what their favourite Hitchcock movie was and we got some awesome replies. Yep, yeah, so Anders Holmes on Twitter and his is his Twitter handle is at Fabricus91 said, so many to choose from, Strangers on a Train, The Lady Vanishes, which I love personally, and Psycho are great. I would say Vertigo is my favourite, so hopefully Anders, you'll uh, you'll like the next section. Yeah, and then we've got uh, Amy Walker at uh, M- Amazing underscore Amy underscore W, which, by the way, I love that because that's a Gone Girl reference. Amazing Amy, love it. Um, and she has simply said, uh, love Psycho. So that's fair enough. I think Psycho's one of the most popular ones anyway. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, Psycho was kind of the introductory film, as I'm sure it is for a lot of people. I think it's possibly his most well-known film because it was the kind of film that always gets rolled out at, like... You know, Halloween or horror movie nights or that sort of thing. And I think Psycho in particular was kind of amazing way because it did kind of... I don't think it was the first ever slasher film. I think that honour belongs to like Peeping Tom or something. But it was definitely the, the mainstream film that kind of kicked off this wave of slasher horror. Whether it meant to or not. But it is basically seen as like a progenitor or a precursor to all that sort of stuff. I can see where it's kind of considered the granddaddy of all slasher films, but you know, there's so many things that you could probably find between it and Friday the 13th as far as mommy issues and all those kind of things, yeah. but mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I would uh, throw it into this slasher canon, but I would definitely say it's a progenitor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has elements in there that you can see. There's like archetypes and all that sort of thing, and you can see it kind of going down to stuff like Friday the 13th and, you know, Black Christmas and, you know, even to the modern ones like Scream and all that sort of thing. Yeah, and stuff like the mommy issues and all that sort of thing that kind of still recurs in slasher and horror movies today. Um, I think what else is pretty cool of note is I think he's one of the few directors to actually... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Remake his own film, so he did The Man I Knew So Much, which I think was 1934, and then he redid it in 19... I want to say 57. Um, I mean, I'm not too sure if any other directors have actually remade their own films. Um, I'm probably completely wrong, but if anyone wants to let me know. Well... Immediately, Michael Haneke with um, uh, Funny Games comes to mind. Yes. Okay, so there's at least two. I love it. Yeah. Uh, on Facebook, we also asked people to talk about their favourite Hitchcock movies, and we got some lovely replies. From Adam Massingham, we got, I haven't seen as many Hitchcocks as I should have, but Psycho is partly why I'm such a big horror film classic. I think that's supposed to be why I'm such a big horror film fan, but yeah, I completely agree with Psycho. Um, and then Matthew Howell wrote Strings on the Train. Excellent. Uh, and Psycho, that's pretty much it. Also, does the film Hitchcock count with Anthony Hopkins in? I love that. I have not actually seen it. Has anyone, either of you guys, seen Hitchcock? Yeah, I've, I've seen it. Have you seen it, Mike? I have not seen that yet. Is it worth my time? Uh, I, I would say yes. I, I think the casting is really good. I, um... I, I would say it's worth it. I was going to say, I mean, I think that film explores more about um, his relationship when he was filming Psycho and about his relationship with his wife, who was his writing partner, and kind of what it took to make the film and their relationship. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know, that seems pretty interesting, so I might go see that. But in the UK a few months after that we had, and I don't know if it's made it way onto like BBC America or something like that but we had a film or like a TV film called I think it was called The Girl or The Hitchcock Girl or something like that and it was about Hitchcock filming the birds and his relationship with Tippi Hedren and everything he put through and his obsession with her and all that sort of thing and that was really good that had Toby Jones and Sienna Miller in it and uh, from what I heard that was pretty excellent yeah, and all the horrible messed up shit he did to her, like the live birds and the attack scenes, and and it's it is weird that we talk about Hitchcock, and there's always these, you know, he's revered and he's got all these positive stories and everything, but then he is kind of infamous as well for all for doing quite a lot of dark, weird, disturbing stuff to his actors and actresses. Well, sometimes I'm curious how much of that is real and how much it isn't, but. Um, I'm sure there's some truth to it. I I just know that I am just wrapping up um, Spato's biography of him, The Dark Side of Genius, and it just it feels like such a um, a poison pen more than anything. Especially the way that he just fat shames Hitchcock throughout the entire book. It's just like I really don't need to know his weight on this particular day. Thank you very mm-hmm. much. And mm-hmm. I think because he's two hundred and fifty pounds, I think he is able to drive a car, Daniel. It's it's okay. You know, I, I I've been that weight before. I was able to get myself around. So even if Hitchcock was four ten, he probably was able to drive a car. Yeah. Big people can do stuff, you know. We don't just sit around doing absolutely nothing. And just like, oh, I'm going to direct films and be really mean and all that sort of thing. No, that's kind of a shit thing to do. You know, Ken Novak said something very nice about him, uh, and this is sort of pre, you know, a precursor to Vertigo, but um, she said that 
he let her explore her characters and he let her do the acting. And oh. I thought that was a very generous thing to say because it sounds, in context of, of what she was discussing, it sounds like a lot of directors maybe didn't give her the opportunity mm. to do that or felt that she couldn't do that. And I, I thought it was, was nice praise for Hitchcock. Yeah. He must have, there must have been some positive relationships he had because he did frequently kind of collaborate with kind of a regular cast. So he had James Stewart in a lot of his films. He had like Grace Kelly, um, you know, all these people who were kind of regulars like Cary Grant and, you know, that sort of thing. So he can't have been completely monstrous to all of them. Oh, yes. And he and Ingrid Bergman became great friends. And, you know, Jimmy Stewart after, you know, said that they had become great friends. So, I mean, there are a lot of horrible stories about Alfred Hitchcock, but there are a lot of good stories too. I always think of it in kind of it was like 2012 when the the movie Hitchcock came out, and there was a big retrospective going on at the time of Hitchcock as one of England's kind of favourite sons. And I think it kind of looked into like the positive and the negative sides of his of his fame and his personality and kind of his career. I mean, there's a brilliant um, one of his last films, and probably, in my opinion, his last kind of great film, um, was Frenzy, I think it was 1978, something like that, and there's a shot where the hero who's been falsely accused of being a murderer and all that sort of thing, he gets thrown into a police cell and it's shot from above and it's like Mm -hmm. a bird's eye angle and everything, and that, I think, directly comes from a story of, kind of, Hitchcock's childhood, when he was I, th- I think he stole an apple or something from an orchard or some kind of very, very minor crime. And his dad asked the local policeman to put him in a cell for ten minutes and say, that's what we do to naughty boys. And I think something like that, and the psychology of it, really had a huge impact on his style and what he did as a filmmaker and the kind of stuff that motivated him. And you do see that throughout his films. Mm. Yeah, and the whole idea of the falsely accused or imprisoned hero does recur a lot so in like North by Northwest in 39 Steps in you know a lot of Hitchcock's work there is the idea that the innocent man can be put away due to conspiracy or due to accident or that sort of thing so that stuff does kind of recur a lot I mean in another sense it's quite good to see talking about the kind of the spectrum he did do and it does go from kind of light to dark and all that sort of thing so in the lighter side you've got films like Mr and Mrs Smith or The Lady Vanishes which is quite light and then you go through the whole kind of spectrum then to stuff like Frenzy which is very dark um oh have you guys heard of Kaleidoscope heard of it yes Mm -hmm. yeah so for anyone who isn't aware it's not usually well known but it's Basically, it's the great, unproduced, unrealised, unfinished uh, Hitchcock movie, which was going to be about a sex killer in New York, I think, and it was going to be very dark and very, you know, going to be a lot of nudity and all that sort of thing. So that kind of dark extreme, I think, Hitchcock was willing to go to and did kind of express. Um, But it's funny in a way, because then smack dab in the middle in the 1950s, you had films that had elements of both in a sense so you know just talk about tonight's episode we've got rear window which is much funnier and much lighter but there is like a dark undercurrent and dark subtext that goes through it and then you've got vertigo which is by nature a much darker film with only kind of spots of lighter moments or comic 
relief, or even comic relief, but that sort of thing. Yeah, I think one of my favorites of his is probably uh, The Trouble with Harry, and just that kind of dark humor, you know, what what to do with a uh, corpse that just won't go away. <laughs> I've never seen it, is it good? I enjoyed it. I mean, that's quite a good thing, in that because he's done 55 films, you can kind of, you know, you can watch a new one every year, or you can, you know, there's enough of a big kind of back catalogue, enough that you can kind of take your time and kind of spread it out, because he has been so prolific over the years. I mean, if I had to get your opinion on... Actually, tell you what, I'm going to be really mean here. Um, if you could only pick one Hitchcock movie to watch for the rest of your life, like you could never watch any others, they all, you know, only you're unable to kind of access them or whatever, which one would you pick? I would that probably is go... mean. Yeah, that is very mean. I'd probably go with North by Northwest, just because that does seem to play with so many of my favorite of Hitchcock's themes, the man on the run, the falsely accused, the way that we have the romance, and just the performances of, of all the characters all the way down the line are just fantastic, and it's probably the one I go back to the most. That is good. The one I would pick, I think, would be Shadow of a Doubt, because yes. uh, oh, nice. I, I love Joseph Cotton in that, and I love Teresa Wright. And I love that she's smart. She is very smart. And that's the one. Plus, Hume Cronin. I love Hugh Cronin. So, I mean, I could go on all day about that film. So that would be the one. Don't ask me to do a top ten. But if I had to pick one, it would be that one. <laughs> yeah, I think it'd be quite hard to do a top ten for any of us. But, um, yeah, no, I agree with Shadow of a Doubt. Um, I, I think Hitchcock said it was the best one he's ever done. And I can, I can see why. Because it is brilliant and it is kind of kind of genius in the way that it gives you know the heroine is really smart in it and I really appreciate that particularly in quite an old film as well um I agree with both of you they're both excellent films yeah with me it's a bit weird really because for many many years um it was rear window um but because I haven't really seen many Hitchcocks or I haven't seen or I haven't really watched them until this kind of this podcast um, I think it's time for me to kind of, you know, do a recap, do a rewatch, so I can kind of make a fresh opinion. Um, but the great thing is, is that I can watch new ones like The Trouble with Harry and all that sort of thing to make a kind of a new opinion. And I'm sure our listeners will be more than happy to kind of recommend any Hitchcocks that we haven't mentioned on the list because there's dozens. <laughs> Our second and final film is Vertigo, a 1958 American psychological thriller directed by Alfred Hitchcock, uh, based on the novel Don Trelamore by Below Nakajak. The film stars James Stewart as former police detective John Scotty Ferguson. Scotty is forced into early retirement because an incident in the line of duty has caused him to develop acrophobia, an extreme fear of heights, and Vertigo, a sensation of false rotational movement. Scotty is hired by an acquaintance, Gavin Elster, as a private investigator to follow Gavin's wife, Madeline, Kip Novak, who is behaving strangely. Small scenes, the fragments of the mirror. You remember those? Vaguely. What do you remember? There's a, a room. And I sit there alone. Always alone. What else? Grave. Where? I don't know. It's an open grave, and I... I stand by the gravestone looking down into it. It's my grave. But how do you know? 
I know. But is there a name on the gravestone? No. No, it's, it's new and clean and waiting. What else? This part is dream, I think, there. There's a tower and a bell in the garden below. It seems to be in Spain. A village in Spain. It's often it's gone. Portrait. Do you see a portrait? No. If I could just find the key, the beginning, and and, and put it together, I'd... explain it away. There is a way to explain it. You see. If I'm mad, well, that would explain it, wouldn't it? Madeline. I'm not mad. I'm not mad. I don't want to die. There's someone within me, and she says I must die. Oh, Scotty, don't let me go. I'm here. I've got you. I'm so afraid. Now, I will be completely honest, this was one of the first, I think it might have been the first three or four Hitchcock movies I ever saw, um, and it did keep, take me a couple of tries to actually get into it, but once I got it in a way, and on rewatches, I really enjoyed this movie, um, and I love stuff like, you know, there's like the third act twist, and there's like the Dali sequence, and all that sort of thing, but... Um, yeah, I'm really more interested to hear what you guys think about this movie. I I really like this movie. I think there's a, a lot to love about it. Um, the one question that I have every time I watch it is, James Stewart, his character was a policeman, really? He was a detective? <laughs> Are you like, I just And I ask this for two reasons. One, he doesn't notice that he's being set up. I mean, he's following Kim Novak's character all over San Francisco, which is strangely empty. But anyway, he's following Kim Novak all over, and she doesn't hear him. She doesn't sense him. She never turns around, and he doesn't find that suspicious. Number two, when the first body fell from the tower at the mission, he does not go to the window to investigate. And I think that as a, as a police man in his career he would have had to trail or be um or question or be involved professionally with very beautiful women and he would have had to have seen a lot of grim uh the results of a lot of grim accidents or murders and he couldn't bring himself to do this now i know that you know you could argue well he was so emotionally involved it was just too hurtful but at at his age one would assume he had been on the force for at least a couple of decades and that his training would have kicked in because I assume that's what police officers are trained for. So I know it sounds like I'm bashing the film and I don't mean to, but that is always a sticking point for me completely loving it. No, I mean, I can I can completely understand that, yeah. Um, I mean, I always took it to be, you know, in the tower scene and everything when uh, Gavin's wife falls and he thinks it's Madeline. Um, I always took it to mean that, you know, obviously he's in love with her and everything and he just cannot physically take it upon himself to do it, even though she proves to be like a mirage of a woman. Um, 
Yeah, that's what I always took away from it. And then the police thing, I mean, I always kind of assumed it was kind of in the aftermath of the incident which he caused the death of a police officer. He would start to think, every time he started to question someone, he's like, is this is my brain actually doing the right thing or is it going off the wrong instinct or... You know, all these maladaptive thought processes, they're just, are they causing me to see, you know, even if he's got this great intuition, he could be double yes or double kind of suspecting himself all the time. So, yeah, but at the end of the day, it's a film. So, and you know, and you know what, you and, and those are, and fair enough, those are very good points. Yes. Well, I just want to kind of carry on with that. I mean, because really, he is not a very good detective at all. I mean, when he. <laughs> But it, I think it serves the story as far as yes. you know. He has been compromised. He might have been a great detective when we first see him running across the rooftops like freaking Neo from the Matrix or something. But after his incident, yeah, he is useless. I mean, when he's talking about things with Midge, Midge is more attuned to everything that's going on than he ever could possibly be. She picks up those threads. She's the one who guesses that he's been talking with Elster, that this is happening, that that's going on, and she is she's following him, and he doesn't realize that he's being followed. At one point, she's sitting outside of Madeline's apartment building, and or outside of, I'm sorry, Scotty's apartment, and seeing Madeline come out, and you know she's watching him. So, she's kind of the, the real detective of the story, and uh, you know, it's, the tragedy of it, I think, is, is that the LB Jeffries, or sorry, the Scotty Ferguson character is not that good of a detective, and yeah, he's uh, he has trouble following uh, Madeline, even though she is letting him follow him. You know, she is leading him more than anything, and showing him all of these things and setting up all of these things in order to create that. And yeah, he's being played like a violin when it comes to everything that she's doing, everything that Elster is doing, and just setting it all up so that they can get away with this crime that really at the end of the film is never rectified as far as we know, other than the ending that was shot, but never shown, he gets away with it. Elster Mm -hmm. gets away with it. And there's two dead women now at the end Mm -hmm. of the story. And one probably ruined woman woman, because I don't think that uh, Midge is going to be too happy by the end of the film either. No, no, I like Midge. I do. I like her. She's one of the, most active characters. I mean, she's only really in the first half of the film, but yeah, she's really active. And well, she's she's an active character. She is a looking character. You know, she's one of these great uh, characters in Hitchcock films that has glasses, kind of like the the woman that's killed in uh, Strangers on a Train. You know, any woman that has glasses is got to be punished by the end of the film. You know that that seems to be one of the common things too. She is in this position of looking when really Scotty's the only one who should have that power. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a bit unfair, actually. The only... I mean, the real issue I have with this film, which it's not to say I don't enjoy it, I really do enjoy it, but we have our hero who is incredibly passive in the first half of the film. For the first half, he's basically being led around by Madeline as Judy, or Judy as Madeline, and through that is Gavin as well. Um, which is fine and everything... But what I truly hate is once you get into the second half of the film and once he kind of reunites with Judy, he then starts to, unconsciously or subconsciously or unconsciously, he starts to enforce on her 
the way that Ma- like Madeline dressed, mm-hmm. and, you know, it is, it is just really creepy. The idea that he's there, like, oh, would you mind, you know, dressing in the same way that you know my dead one true love dressed like? It doesn't mean anything to you, and all that sort of thing. And it's just, it's, it's awful. It's, it's absolutely hideous. You know, it's the whole, you know, oh, would you mind dyeing your hair? Would you mind wearing, you know, her clothes? I just happen to have these clothes from my, you know, my dead one true love who looks exactly like you would you mind doing this and you know judy is clearly upset she clearly does not want this and she asks why can't you just love me for me and he can't answer that he basically says i can only really love you once you look the same as madeline which is a horrible oh yeah it's a horrible message and i yeah i can't really get behind that whatsoever you know and it's only really when you know when she's finally kind of assimilated back into madeline that he's able to kind of pierce the veil and see the truth and you know get the twist that we've known for the past kind of 20 minutes or so um which by the way this just annoyed me i think it's really bad why the hell would you keep the necklace i know i I know that sounds really dumb and everything but then why on earth would you keep the necklace that could so easily incriminate you like i know scott he's not a brilliant detective or anything but even he would recognize the necklace as being oh that's the same one that i know that Madeline liked and that is in the dead Carlotta painting yeah. and everything. Oh yeah, it's weird that you randomly decided to put it on and then it just clicks in his brain. It's just yeah, that that annoyed me. Yeah, I mean, because I've seen the alternate ending as well, which uh, I vastly kind of prefer in a way, if only because I quite like or I prefer kind of resolved, wrapped up endings. And it's not to say that the ending of Vertigo isn't good. It's quite a cathartic ending and it's really good for Scotty's character and thing but it ends things so bleakly um, you know because by the end of it Gavin Elster who is kind of like the true villain he's run away he's escaped he's got his you know he's killed his wife and everything successfully you've got Scotty possibly on the verge of manslaughter because he did drag her up there and kind of frighten her into well not dying because it was an accident but there's definitely some kind of negligible I don't know, like negligible homicide or some responsibility, or I'm I'm not quite sure, but there's, there's something there, maybe. You know, he is culpable in the death of Judy. You know, you've got Judy dead, you've got Midge heartbroken and desolate, so it's a very downbeat, you know, kind of broken ending, in a sense. Um, I mean, I feel sorry for Judy, actually, for this whole thing, because even though she is... Uh, an accomplice to the to the plot to the murder and everything you know she does get manipulated and she does get punished for it in the second half of the film she does basically get forced to by the end turn back into the woman that she never really was um and she has to retrace those steps and she has to basically die the same way you know she dies from falling off the tower and everything so there is a very dark symmetry there which is you know, it's it's a great kind of reflection in Hitchcock's work, but it is very punishing to poor Judy, who I do, I do genuinely feel really sorry for. You know, I mean, this film really hates women. I I hate that. It's something I hate and find very distasteful. Yeah, this is not a, a movie that uh, that women fare very well in. Um, you know, like like you pointed out earlier, the men get away with with all of this, and the women end up paying for it. Midge ends up paying for it with, you know, a, a broken heart and a, a man she can never have who will never be interested in her, likely. 
and two dead women. I mean, it's um, I, it's it's a disturbing film. It 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 is. It's disturbing. Yeah, I love the. I mean, we've. I know that you're a fan of Shadow of a Doubt, and the whole uh, thing of the doubling that happens in Shadow of a Doubt and is also present in this film with just visiting the mission twice, visiting the art museum twice, and just the way that we retrace our steps through the film. I mean, the second half of the film is this kind of funhouse mirror version of the first half of the film, and I just, I appreciate that. Uh, I also don't like how women are punished in here, but I also kind of like that Scotty is ruined in this movie. I mean, it's just the, it's, he is he's basically to me he's still trapped on that rooftop from the very beginning and never gets down he just has this horrible life after that the way that he's feminized the way that he um gets called out on the carpet by the coroner i mean it's just uh it, it's fascinating to see the way that he is minimized and abused throughout this film and yeah he starts to exert his power over judy and i just feel so bad for her but it's just like it's crazy to see Jimmy Stewart, who I know some people said that he was cast against type, but I I think that it's great to see him unhinged as he goes through this. It's kind of like that moment in uh, um, uh, what's the Christmas movie? Um, oh, it's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life when he when he yells at his uncle and it's a wonderful life. It is just like whoa, you know, seeing Jimmy Stewart come apart like that. And in this movie, you really get to see his chops as far as the way that he's an actor and just see that manic look in his eye when he's trying to take Judy and and force her into this Madeline suit again. And at the end, when he's explaining and and kind of you know summing up the whole thing, just the look on his face, just this sweaty death desperation and then to see him there completely broken at the end of the movie and you almost wonder if he's going to jump out of that window you know it's it's pretty pretty scary you know that's a good point i never considered whether or not he was going to jump out of the window i always took it as him feeling like he because he could look out and see the body this time as as he had conquered everything but i i think that's a really good point next time i watch it i'm going to think about that is it possible that he could jump um, and you know what you just said about Jimmy Stewart, you know, his wild, his desperate, his desperation. A lot of people say that that came out after his stint in World War II, but I disagree. I think that we even saw shades of that in 1939's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, mm-hmm. um, that, that desperate character that clawing his way towards a resolution. No, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's interesting to look at James Stewart in this role, particularly because it's a shame, really, that he he was pretty much kind of typecast for a long time as the hero, very straight-laced, morally, you know, upright, all that sort of thing. And then to see him in a role like this, when he gets to, you know, play outside the box a bit, I think traditionally you would have seen someone like Cary Grant in this role, who does have a bit of darkness to him, but then Cary Grant's a bit too kind of slick, I guess, a bit too suave, and he wouldn't really have fit that kind of detective mold anyway. Yeah. Or having that kind of emotional breakdown that Scott has in the film. Yeah, I mean I think James Stewart I think he played a villain in another Thin Man or one of the Thin Man movies from the nineteen thirties. He played a villain in that and it was very good. But it is really great to see him in this to kind of unhinge and to see him pretty much from the start of the film as someone who is 
broken. You get to see get a really great performance out of him. I mean, what I love really, and it, well, maybe not love, but I think is really interesting is that you see Scotty and Judy, and they are both victims in a way of Gavin Elster, who is the real kind of villain of the piece, who is the real mastermind. Yeah, and having them both as being manipulated and abused, and then the second half of the, half of the film is one of them turning on the other and kind of perpetuating that cycle of punishment and abuse and manipulation and, yeah, it's... Until no one actually wins, until Gavin. Gavin is the one who actually comes out of this, a winner. It's a very technically brilliant film, and I love what Mike said about there being doubles and, you know, two Judys, two Madelines and all that sort of thing. And I love the idea of you know, them having to trace the steps in the first and the second half of the film, uh, you know, to the art gallery and all that sort of thing. Um, I mean, for me, I personally love the... For me, the centrepiece of the movie is the kind of dream sequence that does bridge the two kind of halves of the film, the Salvador Dali kind of dream sequence, which to this day I still think looks incredibly modern, and I watched it the first time thinking, wow, I'm really impressed they managed to do that for what they had in the 19... You know, in the 1950s. Um, and the fact it is quite trippy and surrealist and um, it is quite a big departure and break from the tone of the rest of the film. And I think you need that as a way to signify to the audience that things are going to become more dark, that Scott's state of mind is going to become, you know, more warped or twisted or, you know, to kind of show the impact it's having on his mental health. I mean, the other thing I think we've seen similarly from Hitchcock is the the sequence that is in Spellbound. Spellbound. Yes. Mm, that's that's the one with the Dali sequence. Oh, yep. oh, is it? What's what I'm thinking of then? I can't remember who directed these the sequence in this. Um, they give it credit as special sequence, and I can't remember who that was. I can't remember either. I didn't write it down. Yeah. Okay. I will look and find out who the, did the sequence. But yeah, it's great the way that they utilize uh, animation and that that crazy coming at the camera with, with the wind and the colors over Jimmy Stewart's face. I mean, it's just gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. Mm-hmm. Apparently it was designed by John Theron, which is great. I didn't know that. Thank you, John Theron. One thing I do love is I love that, because it is set in San Francisco and you do get to see it, you do get to see the scope of it in the city and the fact it is filmed on location because so many of you know, Hitchcock's films are all filmed on sets and it's quite claustrophobic and quite contained and I think it's the fact that we've just watched and talked about uh, Rear Window that it's a great kind of counterpoint to all this and that Rear Window is really shut off and claustrophobic and it's designed to be that way but then you film on location in San Francisco and it's much more expansive and there's much more of a kind of classical thriller feel to it because you do move around, you do get to experience the city. Yeah, I mean, we do get to see one of my favourite ever buildings, uh, which I really hope to see in real life one day, is the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco, which is this gorgeous kind of Star Wars-looking building, and it's featured really prominently when Judy and Scotty take a walk in the second half of the film, and I... I think it's so beautiful, and I love seeing details like that in films, so I really enjoyed the kind of cinematography in uh, Vertigo. 
San Francisco and the attitudes of the past are definitely such a theme of this and seeing all of these great things, seeing, you know, the Muir Woods and these ancient giant trees and just that, that sequence with Madeline where she points to where she was born and where she was died and where she died. I love that. That's probably one of my favorite moments in the film. But looking at even when Scotty goes into um Elster's uh office and he looks at the old San Francisco and Elster is just like, yeah, that's, that's the San Francisco I like and starts talking about how the world has been changing. And then later on when they go into pop weevils bookstore and he talks about Carlotta and how she was thrown away. And he says, you know, back in those days you could do that. You could throw a woman away. And I love that whole thing that Elster wishes that he lived in a world where he could throw his wife away. And effectively he does do that. He manages to make that happen. Mm-hmm. That is a great bit of foreshadowing, actually, in that we do really yeah. Elsa's character, and then we get that line, and then that basically foretells his entire character arc and motivation throughout the film. That is incredible. That whole scene in the office when it's kind of Scotty and Gavin's first scene that we see, there's a great Vox video on YouTube, and it basically um, talks about how the scene was shot and how it relates to the power dynamics um, and how it's built and constructed and how the way it was shot and the fact I think it's all in one take and everything um, and it's really worth looking up because it is a fantastic little kind of breakdown of that scene which is an, which is a fantastic scene and I think in that way that makes Gavin one of the kind of scariest Hitchcock villains because while we do see his kind of like machinations and his scheming we never see his comeuppance as is kind of typical in a Hitchcock movie but he's an evil mastermind this guy oh yeah yeah I mean that's the thing in that he's only in like a handful of scenes so he's not the kind of looming presence that you know remember is sort of in rear window or any of the other kind of Hitchcock villains that sort of thing he is really dead, and it is really dead that we never see the resolution of his... And, you know, the idea that Gavin just... His plot to kill his wife and everything, he does that. He goes through the... You know, and he gets away with it, and we never see him again past Madeline's trial. And the fact he leaves just, like, this crater impact of misery that ends up causing the death of Judy. Um, and then we don't know what happens to Scotty. We don't know if he jumps. We don't know what the kind of resolution is there. I mean, I kind of took it when he was, the last shot when he's standing over looking at the body and everything is that he is able to conquer his fears and he has been able to get rid of his vertigo and his acrophobia, but it's at the cost of another person's life and it's all thanks to Gavin Elster manipulating the situation. It's uh, it's it's not a great film for messages. There's not a lot of positive um, messages going on at the end because it's just pretty much just like yeah, everyone's dead, miserable, and the only one who gets away happily is the villain. Just thought I'd leave that on a cheery note then. In 2012, the British Film Institute Sight and Sound Critics poll voted it the greatest or the best film ever made, and it replaced 1941's Citizen Kane. Um, which I have not seen, so I can't comment on whether or not it was a, a worthy choice. But Wait, you've not seen Citizen Kane? I've read it's amazing. Oh. I know, I'm a really bad film fan, I haven't seen it. I know, I know, I'm going to film hell. <laughs> it is a goal for this year, though, to see it. And to finally kind of tick that one off the list and have an opinion about it. 
Vertigo is just, it's one of those films, again, kind of like Rear Window, but I think even more so in Vertigo, that you can just, you could spend a lifetime pulling it apart and doing different readings of it, because it is just, it is so rich when it comes to just the different themes and everything. Just even just looking at the opening, uh, um, once they get off of the roof, which you never actually see, but once they get past that, that relationship between Scotty and Midge and her as this kind of crazy mother figure in there, you know, the way that she talks, she even refers to herself as mother at one point. It's just like, okay, there's so many rich veins in this film that you could mine. And Hitchcock was always one of those filmmakers where I never imagined that there were many mistakes in his films. It always felt like things were so purposeful that it's just like, okay, I don't know if he's necessarily doing this, you know, um, for film fanatics like us, but, you know, he definitely is not just throwing things in there for the sake of throwing things in there. And so I always enjoy trying to pick apart his films and, and read them in new ways. I agree. He was a very deliberate filmmaker. I don't think there are any accidents in his films. I totally agree. A person could spend hours and hours discussing Vertigo, discussing one aspect of Vertigo. Um, I, I just think it's interesting when it was first released in the late 1950s in the United States, it had mixed reviews and audiences, I think, largely were kind of undecided about it. And I think it didn't really find its own cachet until the French critics started seeing it and raving about it and, and heralding Hitchcock as a filmmaker. Um, so I, I think if I had seen it when it had been released in 1958, I probably would have been undecided about it too. But I think I would have been swayed by the French critics. I, I know that sounds very uh, um, flippant of me, but I, I, think that's, I think that's the way I would have viewed it. I wouldn't have known. I think if I'd seen it when it was released, I wouldn't have known what it meant. I wouldn't have known what to look for. And especially in a broader, in his broader range of work, as we can see it now from a distance. But as a recommendation, highly recommended. Yes. Um, I think that's one thing we can all three of us can agree on is that it's very highly recommended. Thank you very, very much to Fill Me In, who uh, recommended or who nominated uh, Vertigo. They are available at, on Twitter at film underscore me underscore in one. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much for nominating Vertigo. Okay, that is it for this episode of Pick a Flick. Thank you very much for listening. Um, I am going to let Mike and Ruth kind of flog their words a bit and to their excellent podcast. So take it away, guys. After you, Ruth. Oh, oh thank you. Uh, I'm at silverscreenings.org. I uh, am a, a, a fan movie blogger. I am not a, a, a critical movie blogger. I obsess about films. I post once a week and um, I try to sell classic movies to people who normally wouldn't watch them. So that's my entire goal with my blog. Again, I'm at silverscreenings.org and I'm on Twitter at 925screenings. 
Uh, you can find me over at the Projection Booth podcast. I'm at uh, projection-booth.com, and we put out a new episode every week. Uh, try to look at everything from the outhouse to the art house, and try to put things in context. Talk to some of the folks that were involved with it, if we possibly can, and just uh, yeah, kind of kind of like what you're doing with. We're trying to uh, help spread the word about films that people might have otherwise overlooked. My Twitter handle is, well, it's a terrible Twitter handle. It is ProBoothCast. So, that, it's it's awful. It's not awful, it's memorable, it's to the point. People will come. Uh, you can find uh, PickaFlick on Twitter at PickaFlick. You can also find us on Facebook as PickaFlick. Uh, you can also find Black Hole Media at uh, Black Hole Media. On Twitter, you can also find Black Hole Media at blackholepodcast.com for all of your kind of podcast needs. Uh, You can follow me, if you want to, for whatever reason, on the interwebs at higher underscore boy on Twitter. If you basically want to see me raving about pop music and movies and all kinds of weird stuff. So yeah, thank you to Mike and Ruth for coming on. It's been fantastic having you. And thank you for listening. All right. Bye, guys. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.